Starting a business is a game of persistence. You believe you got the right product, then the market tells you, not quite yet. You're close to bringing that investor in, then they say, come back soon. You think you finally landed on the right business model, but you keep moving sideways. Or as my friend Sergio Furio says in this episode, we build businesses to thrive over 10 to 20 years, but we don't know what's happening tomorrow. Sergio was born in Spain and moved to Brazil after his wife, Silvia, told him about the high interest rates in the country. He founded Banco Fácil in 2011, which later became Creditas. Much later, in fact, Sergio had to adapt his strategy a few times, and he persisted a lot. But he's staying ahead of the game. Creditas is now the largest fintech for secured loans in Brazil. Today, Sergio and I talk about his experience going to market again and again, his biggest mistakes he made when Creditas started to grow, and the fundraising journey that led him to raise over $300 million. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Hey, man. Thank you for making the time to have a chat. Usually I do these in Portuguese, but I think for the benefit of our audience uh, hearing a gringo from California and a Spaniard, uh, you know. Um, we both speak Portuguese like seven-year-old, so. Uh, <laughs> exactly. We'll go with the English where I speak okay and, and you speak well. No, listen, thanks a lot for making the time. Great to have you. I'd love to, speaking of being a gringo, but I'd love to hear from you. What what are the you know the advantages and disadvantages from your point of you know being a gringo entrepreneur in Brazil? How, how has that been from that perspective? Great. So thank you very much for having me. By the way, on one sense, it's great to be a gringo in in Brazil. The culture really embraces gringos. They love gringos. They think that they actually know much more than what I, they actually do. So you <laughs> get like some initial respect from everyone because you have like an accent and it looks like cool. Uh, but seriously, I think that you know in in general. Foreigners and are embraced by the people in Brazil, and um, and it's like um it's like a positive. I would say it's like a it, it, it's a definitely like a positive thing uh, when you get into the country. Um, I think that you benefit from having like an international, more global view, and then uh, adapting it to what you are seeing in uh, in Brazil. I think that's also definitely something that that helps. On the negative, you have like a number of them. <laughs> so setting up the company, I remember it took me like a forever. It was like almost like a year uh, to set up the company just because I didn't have like my RNA, right? Um, and uh, I actually had to go to the cartorio and uh, I was like, uh, I was going to get married in, um, in, in January 13. And I went to the cartorio in May, just because in May 12th, just because I wanted to accelerate my, my visa. Um, I, I'm married to a Brazilian, um, so but but still, it took me like forever. Uh, so the bureaucracy definitely doesn't help gringos in in, in that case. I think that adapting to the culture uh, is something that it may take some time. I'm Spaniard, right? So it's not that I'm like uh, someone from Netherlands or so. So I'm like still like warm, but but you still need to adjust yourself to uh, the way that people speak. Uh, they're not necessarily Brazilians, brutally honest. Um, as, as probably Spaniards and, and Americans are. And uh, there are like some adjustments that you need to make definitely in, in those things. Yeah. I also had the same struggles starting a company. And, you know, like you, I was the illegal immigrant in Brazil for some time while I was trying to get all my documents in order and unable to, you know, get it, get a bank account, all that stuff. So it is a challenge. It's not that easy, but, you know, I think hopefully it's, it's getting easier. You mentioned you're, you know, you married a Brazilian. So, by the way, you know, I bet your wife, you've married up. She's an awesome person. Tell me about your wife because she's played in a part of your journey. Yeah. So, spouses are always like super relevant for your career, I think, right? And yeah. um, I actually moved from Spain to New York back in 2008. I met Sylvia in December 2010. Uh, we used to work together. Actually, she was a consultant in my team. We used to work in consulting. We built like sort of like a very nice friendship relationship. And then after a while, we ended up like dating. And that was 2011, uh, mid-2011. I was actually at that moment taking the decision of uh, becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, I was like feeling inspired by some people that I had met. And I was saying, okay, I, I want to do this. And But what's my unique value proposition? What's my, uh, what's my differential uh, to do something in fintech in the US? I mean, there are like so, mu so much people in the U.S. that it's like, they're like amazing. They're like already doing things and stuff. 
So what can I do as uh, something like differential? And then I looked at Sylvia and I said, well, Sylvia, she's Brazilian. And then she tells me, uh, first thing, the first contribution was actually telling me, you know, interest rates in Brazil are like astonishingly high. So, so that definitely was like uh, the inspiration or the muse, if you want, because then I went um, to the central bank website, started like searching about the interest rates and what the hell. And I said, Sylvia, this is like a, absolutely amazing. What if I just like moved to Brazil? Would you come with me? And we have been dating for like three months, literally. <laughs> and she looked at me and said, you, what are you talking about? Uh, you've never been in Brazil. You don't speak Portuguese. You have never been in Brazil again. Uh, what are you going to be doing there? You know, interest rates are so high as you told me and so on. So, so that was like pretty funny. You know, after seeing that, I was like serious about, about that. Then she agreed on coming with me. Uh, I did my first uh, trip. That, that was like in December 2011. But I had already taken the decision without even visiting um, without even visiting Brazil. Uh, so that was uh, the, first, uh, the, the first contribution. The second one was, uh, you know, I, I launched a company in, in April 12th, just like four months later. You know, moved down to Brazil, rented a, an, an apartment, I asked her to marry with me, and she said yes. That was like a, a, a great part of the story. Uh, but, but we said, hey, I, I don't want to mix our financials. I, I'm going to take care of myself, although I'm going to be like an unemployed entrepreneur for a while. Sort of like did my math and say, okay, so this is what's going to happen. But I didn't have like an account yet in Brazil. It took me actually like four or five months. I was even going to the bank and saying, I want to open an account. And they were saying, what's your salary? And I said, I have no salary. <laughs> we don't give accounts to people that don't have salary. But I'm like a good guy. I mean, I have like money. I can send money. No, no, no. We don't do things. What? So I had like to cheat and then to tell them that actually I had like a salary. But anyways, so in month four, after like founding credit, that was like a probably like August or something. The way that my mechanics to pay to the early employees was like getting to an ATM using my credit card from the US, cashing out money. The limit was like, uh, I don't know, like 1,000 reais per, uh, per day or so. And I had like to go like uh, eight consecutive days to get like the money to, so that I can pay to the employees. One month, I couldn't do that. Uh, for whatever reason. And then she lended me the money. She actually, so Sylvia paid to the, to the employees. That was like 20,000 reais for five employees that we had or something like that. I then gave her the money. So two months later, I say, why don't you become my first uh, investor? And then I wrote, uh, I wrote a very nice convertible note uh, in, a, in a napkin. And, uh, and that was like the, the initial funding, external funding capital of credit. She, she, she made like a very nice money. Uh, at least so far in paper, with that oh, yeah. uh, twenty thousand, <laughs> of that course, real no, investment. Right? Everybody needs their first uh, first investor, first person to believe in them. And so it's funny. A lot of these stories you're describing remind me of my kind of journey, also with the ATM, pulling the money out, you know, paying in cash initially. And my wife actually, we worked together as well. And you know, eventually we're like, okay, we can't work together because we're just talking about the business the whole time. But it is an important part of the the journey. You need, you know, there's a great book. I had Brad Feld on, on my podcast um, from Foundry Group. And he wrote a great book called Surviving and Thriving in a Relationship with an Entrepreneur. I actually strategically left that on the counter. My wife picked that up, a, uh, you know, years ago. It's been a, a helpful part of our journey because, man, it's, it's a team sport and uh, it's a hard thing. But it's great that your wife, she, you know, Sylvia had the foresight. She, she bet on you and uh, it turned out to be a good investment for her. Um, but Brian, it, it's yeah. even more than that. I'm sorry to just like continue on that, but uh, I think that the third thing was actually like recruiting most of my executive team today. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, she, so I got introduced. She was a super value add investor then, not. No, <laughs> so it's uh, Luana, which is my VP of Auto, Vivi, which is my VP of Home, Fabio, which is my VP of Business Development. All those guys are coming from uh, Sylvia, like either like uh, workmates of Sylvia or uh, HBS classmates. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that was like uh, extraordinary for me because I was like, a, again, a gringo with no connections. So I had to use her connections. Yeah. And then the, uh, the last one was uh, when she used to work in consulting, as we were saying, and she had done the due diligence of a soft bank investment in Brazil. Yeah. And that was like before she moved into soft bank. And then when I was raising Series D, she said, 
don't you want to talk to the guys from SoftBank? And I said, well, yeah, sure, but I don't know like anyone there. I oh, know I can introduce you to the guys. So she introduced me to the guys and actually they, they ended up like making the investment. So I think that I definitely, she deserves 50% of the business. They do say, you know, behind every great man is a great woman. And this is obviously one of those cases. Uh, it's fantastic. And now she's at SoftBank, um, you know, which is kind of funny because you've raised money from SoftBank. I guess they invested before she joined uh, SoftBank. So uh, just, for, just to, to clear the record here. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I remember in the early days, you pivoted a few times, right? What were the challenges you faced when you started out and how did you end up landing on the Creditas model? Yeah, so we, we don't like calling it like a pivot, uh, not in our case. We, we like to call it expansion of our yeah, business. <laughs> I understand your bullshit uh, pretty well. I'm just kidding. Um, it's an extension of, it's a stepping stone, right? Is that, is that kind of... Yeah, but just that it's it's part of a joke. But but, but yeah, definitely <laughs> definitely things changed like a lot. Um, so today okay. we have like a full fledged ecosystem. You like a bank, but to get together with like a services and solutions platform, like a whole thing that we are doing. Uh, sometimes I like feel like uh, even frustrated that we are not doing even more than that. But in those early days, it was impossible to try to think about it in those terms. So the ecosystems were not ready. I didn't have like the funding. Everything was too expensive. So we selected a model that was like easy to implement and a good starting point. That was like, a, let's create a marketplace of financial services. Uh, our uh, North Star was, uh, we're going to reshape financial services in Brazil. We will find a way of doing that. We had like a master plan that was, we start with the leads uh, and the leads were coming from content, right? So the original bank facile started with content to move into leads, to move into origination, and to end up with, uh, with being like a, a full-fledged provider, right? Um, so what happened was like, uh, in those early days, the economics, they really sucked. It, it, it was like nonsense. There was no way of creating a, um, a significant business just with uh, a lead generation machine without having like the control of the value chain and so on. So we realized that early on in 2013, uh, that was like already like one year, a year and a half, and uh, probably like a, a, a relevant thing that happened there was um, we ended up like doing like a very early M&A transaction. There were like this uh, guy, Alberto Gaidis, that, that had built a small startup doing lead generation for home equity loans. The name was Grana Aki, like money here. I remember. I remember Grana Aki. I remember. Money yeah. here. We had like a team of six people. And I said, hey, Alberto, why don't we uh, integrate those two operations uh, and we ended up like doing that thing. I agreed with Alberto. Alberto was getting out from the operations. So I took over the entire thing. And then I looked at the home equity loan and I said, well, that's exactly what I wanted to do. It's uh, democratized access to, you know, cheap credit. Why don't I take that model and I started doing a verticalization process? Not only doing the lead, but doing the application, the credit, the formalization, the legal, and everything with a technology and a digital approach. Um, so that's what we decided to do. The problem is that that's damn difficult. <laughs> I mean, one thing you'd like saying that the, the different story is doing that. So uh, we said, okay, so let's do this. It took us like two or three years from that point to actually have something that made sense, which was like an origination platform, just origination. And then once we get there, that was like the first moment in which we got the funding from VCs. Then we said, okay, so this is not enough. We need to go one step beyond that. And we need to have our own loans, not only loans, that we originate for somebody else. And that took us like another two years. And then when we got there, we said, okay, you know what? It's not only about like originating our own loans. It's about building a full lending platform, investing in the loans and collecting the loans. And, and then ultimately, more recently, we said, okay, so it's not even just that. We need to go one step beyond that. And we need to provide an end-to-end -end solution to the customer. And if that means that we need to buy or sell a car for the customer, or buy or sell a, a house to the customer, then we will do that, right? So I think that's like a, a lot of different things. Every couple of years, we were expanding the dream, uh, and, and there's where we are now. And correct me if I'm wrong, like when you start out and you have a general idea of what you're doing, the market gives you the feedback, you go out, you do it, you learn, and then market expansion. Oftentimes, I remember I did a, you know, I think we both might have done that little Stanford course at Kaz through Kazek. And I remember there was a class there and it talked about retrospective rationalization, where you basically, <laughs> a lot of these like business case studies, it's like, 
oh, we did this and then we did this. And it was like this kind of perfect model where it's like stepping stone, like step function. You do this and you get to this. Let's be real about it. Did you have like exact clarity of what you're going to do and how much of it was just learning in the process? I think it's important for other founders to understand that because like oftentimes you look at a business like Krajitas and you're like, oh, super obvious what you're doing now. But like on, in the process, you adjusted and you, you moved in the process based on what you learned, right? Totally. And, and it's not obvious at all. Um, so if you think about it, everything was pointing in the opposite direction. You were building a technology company. Why the hell are you going to be lending money to people? That's considered like asset intensive. So you should be just doing technology, taking care of the customer and, and this beautiful experience. And with a small team, pure technology, not having people and so on. And we ended up like going the other route, right? Uh, so it was definitely not the plan to do it in, in these terms. I think that the, what you said in the plan is you want to change a reality. You don't know how you're going to be doing that, right? So you're, you, you start with, you know, being a consumer in financial services sucks. Uh, you're paying way too high and that margin is unjustified. And that's what guides you. Uh, the way that you try to improve that reality is totally unknown. Uh, we have like some basic uh, ideas of we're going to start small and then we were verticalized. But we didn't even know what verticalization meant at that point. Remember yeah. that 2012, 2012 was a pre-fintech term, right? Yeah. So fintech was not, was not a term. I was like, a, I was like an ex-banker and then uh, I became a specialist in consulting for banks. So the only thing that I knew how to do is, okay, let's build a technology company that does financial services. But the whole idea of fintech today, the aggressiveness of fintech, the mindset of, yeah, I can change the status quo and I can be 10 times better than a bank. That didn't exist uh, when we started. That's yeah. just things that you figure out. I had never thought before that uh, the, the current view that we have, which banking in the future is going to be much more than pure banking. It's going to be solutions. Uh, and, uh, and that means what we are doing today in selling iPhones. We sell iPhones as part of our business. We have like a business unit to sell iPhones. I had never thought about that before. Yeah. But now it makes sense just because it attacks a piece of my business model, which is the CAC. I think that, as you're saying, we shouldn't be rationalizing the trajectory because it, it's not something that you had expected to happen in those terms. Not at all. Yeah. You never set out from day, day zero and close your eyes and imagine what the future looks like. And then it's never whatever you think it's going to be, right? I mean, the old classic kind of like, you know, your business plan is just old and stale as soon as the ink dries, right? Because you got to just build stuff that customer, what customers want. And you don't know what customers want until you go to the market and then it tells you. And, and also remember, Brian, that uh, we build businesses for, to thrive over 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. I have no fucking idea what's going to happen tomorrow. How yep. am I going to be like a, creating a strategy that thrives for 10, 20 years? That doesn't exist. What can thrive is a culture. Uh, those building blocks, right? Those, the aggressiveness, the mindset, that persists. But uh, really like the strategy in the old days that we said, let's create like a business plan of three years, five years, they don't make like sense anymore. Change is so fast and customers change so fast that you really need to be a master in adaptation. And you mentioned something really interesting, which is, you looked at the financial services business, right? This is not a very good service. This is something that could be, you know, 10 times better. You know, I was talking with Mauricio Feldman from Volanchi the other day on, on this podcast. And, you know, he says that large markets, you have seven lives, you know, like cats. You're talking about one of the biggest sectors in Brazil. Financial services gives you a better chance of surviving. You're going to make mistakes. And if you go after a really niche market and you're narrow, uh, what are your general thoughts? Is that something you're aware of when you looked at how did the ideation happen? I guess your trajectory as an, a consultant for banks was like a strong indicator of like, hey, I have some expertise here because I've been doing this for a little while. Talk a little bit more about kind of markets yeah. and how you look at markets. Yeah. So in Creators, I didn't do like any analysis about like, you know, what's the size of the market? It's financial services. Everyone knows that it's a huge market. Uh, but I was not thinking in those terms. I was not. I, I was like a first-time entrepreneur. I had no idea what I was doing. That's the reality. I had really no idea. Today, when I invest, when we invest, we do it in companies that we think that are in a relevant market because we know that relevant markets are what's going to attract the VC money. Is what's going to allow you to actually, as uh, as Marcelo was saying, to make mistakes. It's going to happen all the time. If you take like a very narrow approach to something, and if you want to, you know, work in. 
uh, I don't know, like um, a new technology for swimming pools, then probably the market is going to be too small. If you just take a mistake and, and you don't have like a clear go-to-market or you don't find like, the right type of customers, yeah, then probably you're going to fail. And it's not going to have like, you're not going to have enough time actually to survive. So if you select like a, a bigger audience and a bigger market, then you have like much, many more chances. Now, there's like a flip side of that. In a very broad market, you have like the risk of becoming superfluous, of uh, being irrelevant. And actually, if you think about it, fintech in general is irrelevant in financial services. Yeah, we make like a, not, a lot of noise. We, uh, you know, people love us because we are like, uh, you know, the underdogs and then we try to kill the fat guy and, you know, all, those, all, all that stuff. But honestly, just take the U.S., right? So probably like fintech represents less than a couple of percentage points of the market. 98% is still like pure traditional incumbents, right? Um, so so that, is, that, that is tricky and you need to be careful with that. The, the other risk that you take when, when you are attacking a broad market is that you may suffer a lack of focus, right? Uh, so I'm a fan of taking like a huge market where you can span, but start with like a niche play in that broader market. I think that's uh, something that really resonates in, in me like a lot. I didn't do it by choice, but if I would, uh, if I had like the chance of like becoming an entrepreneur again, which I doubt, but if I had the chance for that, I would think a lot about exactly that, which is selecting a, a big market and then taking like a narrow approach that I can use it as a platform then to uh, grow the business and move into adjacent spaces. That's what happened with Kratos. We took like a very niche uh, approach that was home equity loans. Then we moved into something broader, all equity loans. Then we moved into payroll loans, which is much more democratic. We are now with auto financing. So creating like a lot of different views on the same principle with a much larger market. You also, oftentimes like your customer acquisition costs are lower because you already have a customer base, it's easier to move into different segments. And you already have kind of the process, the underwriting capacity that's all applicable to other, other verticals. You know, you mentioned fundraising and the money came in, you know, you raised a little bit of capital uh, but after raising a Series A and closing a big partnership, you had kind of a difficult year, if I remember, 2015. What were the main challenges uh, that you had to, to get through, you know, to kind of get over the hump? Uh, yeah, so sometimes I hear like entrepreneurs or other, you know, younger entrepreneurs or that have like a businesses that are like smaller at this point. And I say, yeah, you were so lucky you were able to raise so much money. I said, dude, you're not understanding this movie. It's not like that. <laughs> not at all. So, yeah. First, it took me like a year and a half to get the first check. I'm mean, besides Sylvia, right? Yeah. Um, and that was like, I suffered like crazy because everyone was telling me no. And they were telling me no because my business actually sucked. Um, and then I ended up like putting together like a bunch of angel investors, uh, you know, different groups and a couple of like small, very, very small and tiny VC type napkin ventures from Luciano Tavares, you know, like a, a crowd to support us in, in those early days. Now, we took that money and it took us like another two years to create something meaningful so that we could get in front of VCs and the VCs would tell us, yes, you, you, now we want to invest some money. And that was like, you know, valuations of that time, not valuations of today. That was 2015, not yeah. 2019, right? Yeah. Uh, so at that point, I remember, you know, it was like a, it was like a 5 million, 6 million reais check uh, on, you know, for a 20% dilution type of thing, right? Which was like that type of thing that, that we used to do in, in those early days. Now, we took that money. I thought it was like more money than I would ever had. Um, and, uh, and, and we shut the door and said, let's work, work, work. And we invested heavily in technology, in technology but we didn't have like enough time. Uh, and also, we sucked in management. So I have forgot all the principles of management. And uh, I was just in garage mode. Uh, I started 2015 with uh, a team of 12 or 13 people. I ended up 2015 with a team of 65. But we were applying the same rules. And that just doesn't work. When you start like, having like, uh, more than 10, 15 people in your team, communication is crucial. The culture, the way that you talk to people, the, the way that you behave in public, that becomes much more relevant. And I actually had forgot that that was important. That was my previous life, not the life of an entrepreneur. That's what, what, what I thought. So we got into a trap of like spending money quickly with not business results, but a very nice plan. But then on the other side, with a lot of problems in management, in culture, and that was like the late 2015. Uh, so in early 2016, we said, dude, uh, I got in front of my investors that were like, at that point, it was Redpoint, it was Quana and Kiwiti, amazing investors, super partners. And we said, hey, 
actually we're burning like a, a lot of money uh, for our size. And I think that we need to raise some money. Coincidentally, I met uh, Hernan from Kasek in an event in Cubo. Yeah, that was like the early days of Cuba. I think it was like a, one of the first events that was like a, a end of 15 or early 16. And I explained what we were saying, what we were doing and what we were planning to do. And I said, well, that's, uh, that's interesting. So we, I started to like, have like discussions with Kasek and I went back to my investors. Well, it looks like Kasek is interested. Hey, okay, go for it, go for it. So we started getting into due diligence and so on. It becomes like a critical moment of, okay, what's your ask? What are you asking for? And we asked for, you know, a ticket that was like relevant at that point, probably like five times the ticket that we had before, which implied like more or less like four times higher valuation than before. And then Kasek very rapidly came back and said, well, yeah, you know, that's, that's not going to happen, but very good luck with your business. And please come back again in a couple of years. Uh, we really love you. And, and, you know, all those things that investors, I was like so frustrated with that because then I was looking at this pace at that point. And there were not that many investors to do like a, a follow-on on a Series A. I already had three. So that would have become a, like an internal round. And doing like an internal round, as you know, is not ideal because it's looked like a, you are saving the company internally, right? So then the lobby started to started to work, right? So I went back to my investors and, uh, and I said, hey, what do we do? Uh, okay, so there are like two choices. Either we put the money or we convince Cassie. So we set up like a, st- a strategy that was like very detailed and uh, about, you know, who's going to call whom, uh, what we're going to say, what are the key points. And, uh, and we ended up like doing, uh, you know, like a- another pitch to Kasek with a significantly lower ask on our requirements. Uh, and they ended up like uh, loving what we were doing. It was like a- an inflection point at that point. It was April 2016, just like a, a year later year after the, the Series A, one month later than that was when we uh, issued our first proprietary loan, right? And that completely changed the dynamics of the company, right? So since that moment, we started growing 7x the next year, then 5x the year after. So it was like a dramatic change. And uh, and yeah, we were very lucky because if we if wouldn't have like get that money, yeah, we probably would have like a different story. Was this like an extension of your Series A then when yeah. Kazak came in? Yeah, yeah, it was an extension. We did like a, a, a slight reprice on the round. So we moved a bit the share price, but not that much. Yeah. And so you just got them on the cap table, gave you enough cash to kind of uh, execute on that kind of next era of the business, which involves actual lending. When you price something like that, like, you know, there's always a discussion about this. And I guess it's heavily depends on how much leverage you have as a founder, right? If you have a hot deal, pricing is is easier, right? Do you feel like founders, when they go out and raise early amounts of capital, talk about like a, a seed round or a series A, or even like an angel round, how do you think about pricing? Do you think it's best to price it? Do you Should the market price it? Uh, if you've got a lead investor, should you indicate exactly what you're looking to sell? How would you recommend, broadly speaking, that founders approach that? Because I, I think it, it really depends, uh, as you may imagine, right? But but, but first is the context of the time in which you live, right? And again, as we were saying, 2015, 2016 has nothing to do with 2019. No, it's another it's world. Totally different world. Almost like the price of a seat today could be as high as the price of a Series B at that point. Yeah. Uh, so dramatical changes. And it's on one side, it's because of competition, right? So there's much more competition on the, on the VC side. And then number two, the ad- ad- adoption of uh, digital solutions from a, a customer perspective is much faster now than it used to be like three, four years ago. Just take smartphone penetration. Now it's probably like a 3x what we had back in 2016, right? So obviously the business cases are much better now, now than before. So that's the first thing, right? So it's when, what's the time in which you are living? Uh, now the second is who you are, <laughs> right? So first time entrepreneur, second time entrepreneur, it's totally different angles, right? If you're like a first time entrepreneur with very little experience in the startup world, you're going to get punched by the investors, especially in the first round. So I, I definitely suffered that. No questions asked. I would have loved to have like a seed round, four times evaluation, and everyone would, would have been happy because at the end of the day, the entry point at that level is not that relevant. It's much more relevant. Is the entrepreneur amazing? Is the business case impressive? Is the margin structure in the future going to be looking good or not? So, so I think that's uh, the reactions. Now, we've been a company that has never gone beyond the space that we should be in. So I think that Creators has been more or less doing 2x 
to two and a half x every round in terms of value, uh, in, in terms of value per share, which is like a, an okay uh, type of uh, upticks in every single round, right? So now it has been like five times that we have done that. Uh, so it creates value for everyone, but at the same time, it doesn't inflate on the expectations that you're going to have. Now, is it by design? Uh, no. <laughs> every time that you go and then you try to raise money, to be very honest, you try to get like as much as you can. And you, you try to become like a hot deal. It's just that in Creditas, it never happened. Uh, yeah. Creditas has been like always like a company, okay, uh, that has been growing, uh, but it has never been like a, that superstar that everyone wanted to. I've never had more than two term sheets in front of me. Just to be very clear. Um, and I was like only in two cases in all my life, right? Um, so I think that's, uh, that it's, I think that having like a humble approach still works. And I'm very happy of where we are now. The delusion that we have, uh, that we have got over those five rounds of funding, this is still something that is very meaningful, what we have today as uh, me as a founder and the team as a management team. And that's what counts, right? Now, in terms of the strategy to face the investors, I never asked what's the, my request in terms of uh, valuation. Uh, I just let the market speak. There are like other founders that tend to go with, you know, this is my ask. Uh, we have never done that. We ask on, you know, what's the ticket that we that we want and then wait until the market tells us what they want to pay for us. Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of ways to look at this, right? It's like you talk about how much you want and then you let the investor back into the valuation, right? I, I do tend to think it's important to d declare what you want in terms of your capital, right? Because, and I see oftentimes founders, you know, I've seen a deck that's like, we're raising five to 10 million. And it's like, how much are you raising? Like maybe if you come with like, you know, we're raising, you know, two to 3 million, for somewhere between 15 to 25% of my company, obviously an investor is going to look at that and say, okay, 2 million for 25%, right? Like that's, so it, it does sometimes help to give a guide to the investor, but just by stating the capital you're raising, you know, the investor is going to do the math and they're going to say, okay, the, the expected valuation of this founder is backed in 15 to 25%, you know, dilution. So they'll, they'll come up with a number. Um, yeah, that but, happens, Brian. That happens, Brian, in, definitely in, in, in seed, in series A and series B probably. C yep. and D and beyond, it, it, it ends up happening less, right? So the dilution in those cases, it may go much lower or yes. much higher, right? It speaks true more to the, the seed and the Series A uh, and maybe the Series B, but you're, you're right. As you get further along, it's not strange to you know, sell a 5% equity stake in, in a round for a Series C, especially since you've already suffered some dilution if you've you know, raised capital to get to that point. Um, no, that, that's great. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And so they... Kazakh eventually, you know, got on board and what was their holdup? Like you said, you had a shitty business or something at that point, or how long did it take them from those first conversations? Just out of curiosity, our friends. Uh, like, and so we had like from the first one that was like December, uh, 2015, and we signed the term sheet in April and we got funded in, in May. So it yeah. was like relatively fast at Good. that point. And in reality, that was like with the, uh, with that window of inefficiency, of a couple of months in which they have said no to our business, right? So in yeah. reality, once once we did like a, did the, the right request and the right approach, it took yeah. us like a sixty days and twenty. It's a good lesson there because they said no, and then and then you ended up you know bringing them on as an investor. So just because someone says no initially, you know, I think that the whole similar to you, you know, I feel like we're over here like old guys talking about how we used to walk seven miles in the snow, but the reality is it was hard, and I remember getting rejected 30 times. And that's like, can be demoralizing after a while. Um, but the reality is that it's a game of persistence, right? I think we've, we've always talked about just those entrepreneurs that can, you know, kind of just outlast and continue to stay focused on, you know, keeping their eyes on the prize and head down executing. Eventually, you, you, you know, you overcome. Yeah, I would love overnight success. It just didn't happen to me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it, and it, it always looks like that in hindsight when people see it. But they don't see all of this, the struggles and the, you know, the, the challenges throughout that. Let's recap a few things. So how long did it take you to feel like you figured out the right model? If you, if you go from like day one and then you're like, okay, now we are, you know, we're asset back lending, um, you know, take us from lead gen business to asset back lending business, where it's like your new iteration of your business time span. What was that? Yeah. So the, the thesis, we came up with the, with the thesis and what the economics would look like late 14. So that was it. while we were doing the pitch of the Series A, 
we already incorporated that part of the business. Um, but in reality, to execute it, it brought us, uh, I would say, let's say like July, August 2016. So it's four years. Yeah. Since I founded Creditas, since I founded Bank Facio, and then went through the different things. And it took me like four years to actually come up with the, with the final model. And today yeah. it looks like it's, it's a pretty obvious thing. <laughs> it always does, right? In hindsight. But it's hard. One thing that I wanted to, uh, you know, kind of dig in a little bit more with you, the challenges of that 15-person company versus the 65-person company and how there was that moment where you went from like, you know, kind of scrappy bootstrap and into management. Ironically, you came from management consulting. You have like a, an executive background and you were an executive before you were a founder, right? I often talk to you and I, and I recall other interviews you've done where it's like you weren't a founder starting out. I, I was never smart enough to get hired by anyone. So I ended up uh, learning on my own, but you're one of those cases where you had this experience, this management experience already. What were the things if you look at that you forgot about or that you weren't doing uh, that was that would have been critical going back from 15 to 65, like that that key moment that you were kind of just not paying attention to, and then you woke up and you're like, "Oh, I need to be doing this." Yeah, so, yeah. So, so, so the, I think the first one is the speed of growth in the in your uh, in your headcount. I think is is very relevant. Uh, so, if you have like a team of 15 and you're trying to onboard. Uh, you know, three, four guys in a month, that's fine. If you try to onboard 15 guys in a month, so doubling the team, typically something doesn't work well. Uh, you just don't have like enough bandwidth to explain to everyone what's going on and, and what they're expected to do and so on. So they were like chaos. Um, my, uh, we didn't have like even like someone doing HR. I hired like my HR person when we were like uh, already like 55 people or something. Uh, so I was like doing everything on my own. I was like uh, sending the wire transfers individually uh, to every single employee until we were 80 people in the team. That were like uh, every month I had like, uh, you know, starting like at 11 p.m. and then finishing at 2 a.m. in the morning because I was not able to uh, to do like block transfers and so on. Um, so it, it was like just stupidity, right? It's a uh, dude. I mean, just like find people to help you it leverage on people. I was like so in garage mode that I was not realizing that I was like a, a poor experience for everyone, a lack of attention to what actually matters and a lack of focus. I think that's, a, that's definitely one thing that, that happened and, and didn't go well. Yeah. Now, more in the specifics is uh, you know, the, the importance of communication again. If you are like 12, 13 people, typically you go every single day, you go to lunch together. I remember like until we were like 15 or 20, all of us, we were going into a table, the crappy restaurant every single day uh, and, you know, discussing, talking about work, talking about life. Everyone was super aligned. When you get to like 30, 40, 50 people, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, then you start like uh, not even remembering the name of that guy that is sitting there. You start like uh, you don't do the right type of onboarding of that person. Why? Because you don't have like enough time. Uh, you should be leveraging on some other people, but People, everyone is so new. They don't have context, so they cannot do the onboarding, right? Uh, so those things are very relevant. And I think that the, my, 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 the biggest mistake was not hiring someone to take care of talent. Taking care of talent doesn't mean that the founder is not going to be involved in talent. It's, that doesn't happen. But someone to help you in, uh, in leveraging and, and creating something. It's someone that you, you need to trust. The, the, the other side is, is the, it, it really depends on the founder. I'm a founder that I don't necessarily like managing people. Uh, and I just realized it when I became an entrepreneur. I loved when I was an executive, but not about like uh, managing people. I loved about like, uh, what I loved about my work was about solving problems. Uh, I love to doing that. There are like older managers that are more like leaders yeah, that, that uh, love to talking to people and, and bringing in more talent and uh, having, doing performance review. That's not me. I'm more like the guy that is like nerdy and that solves the equation. So if you're not passionate about that side of the business, you need to understand that it's crucial. So you need to fix it and you need to create an amazing culture. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, the importance of recognizing as soon as possible that you are screwing it up because you're going to screw up like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Every single week, I could make like a book just with how many times I, I screw up with things today, right? So imagine at that point with the chaos. And I was not even just, uh, I, I was like, uh, you know, having like sleepless nights, just thinking, oh, dude, how could I say that to that guy? Or how could I be shouting to that guy that 
who guy? He, I, I never, I, I never explained him what he had to do. It's just like too much pressure. What, what I realized then was that you actually need to get in front of everyone and say, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't live up to my expectations. Uh, and I'm not doing like a good job here. I need your support. I need your help. I, this is the first time that I'm doing this. And then when I started doing that later in 2017, I, I realized that people love it because they see that you're a human. And, and sometimes, you know, founders, uh, when you start like, having like 60, 70, 80 people, they look at you and say, well, this is the, this amazing guy. He knows it all. It's true. The founder has superpowers because they have the context of the business and they are the soul of the business. But they make like a lot of mistakes and they suffer like a lot. And recognizing that, I think that is very relevant. I agree. And in 2020, it's almost like a cliche to talk about vulnerability because it's something that, you know, if you've seen the Brene Brown, the power of vulnerability, I remember showing that to my team, you know, early on when that video just came out and was a fan of the topic and think that one of the things that founders forget is to share the burden of the challenge, right? Like people are impressive. I mean, look, you've got Anne on your team withholding everything and like, you know, centralizing everything. I mean, You'd screw up a lot of stuff and she's much better at certain things than you. And you've got a whole team. You've made some great hires, an awesome executive team. And it's, it's just so critical to have those That's people. It. That's exactly it, right? So Anne has everything that I don't have. And actually, she loves most of the things that I don't love. Um, and, uh, and you really need that type of person. And we need to hire people that are different than us. Different and better in certain areas so that you can actually create like a, a, a good merge between those type of personalities. I think that that's super relevant. And diversity, again, it, it's a cliche these days. But I mean, you look at my executive team today, 50% are women and we need them because they manage life in a different way. And they provide this vulnerability that we now, everyone talks about it and so on, but it is so much needed that if you don't have that type of personality, everyone ends up like being in a room, being like the macho man that knows it all, and that is going to explain to the world how the world is going to change over the next 20 years, right? So avoiding that type of uh, dialogues and bringing like a diverse executive team, I think it's super relevant to actually grow the business and create like an amazing culture. And the tipping point for that was, you know, and coming, taking over that challenge. And we changed the brand from Bank Facil to Creditas in February 2017. What worked well that in that case was, one, it was like a reshaped culture. Two, it was like a new business model. Three, it was like a different vibe in the company. So it was like not just changing the brand. Some, some, sometimes people come to me and say, yeah, you changed the brand and it, it went so well. What did you do? It's not just about the brand. It's the entire company that you need to rethink about it and then you need to move it to another level. Yeah, brand is a very layered topic, right? Of On many different levels. I never really understood this when I was building Viveral. I never thought about brand. So many things that we did were just accidental, right? Good and bad, right? And so, you know, as a second time entrepreneur thinking about my next thing, it's so much easier to kind of look back and be like, oh, don't do this, do more of this. And so I think one of the things that I want to highlight is in this process, and maybe I'll link it up in the show notes here, you talked about massively scaling up the hiring from 15 to 65 or whatever the number was. And that's really hard to do like month after month, right? I remember having a, I can, it's one of those conversations and I've actually mentioned this a couple of times. I think it was um, a Hyatt or one of those uh, hotels down there. And I was in the lobby with him having a chat and he said, Brian, it's the stop and go strategy. And I'm like, what is that? Uh, the stop and go strategy. It's go hard real quick. You hire a bunch of people and then you stop and you absorb. And it's about increased productivity. You go back to productivity because when you're hiring, you instantly lose productivity. Like if you go on a massive hiring spree, it's just like, it's chaos, right? And yeah, then, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is that something so, so you thought way, of? Yeah, no, definitely. Yes. So we, we later on, you know, that, that was probably like in 2017 uh, already, we realized what was our critical number as a percentage of increase in headcount that we could do every month. Right. Yeah. And that number ended up like being, if uh, it needs to be below 10%. So you cannot increase your headcount more than 10% in a month. Uh, and the rationale for the 10% was, uh, you know, our teams in general, they are made up of like 10 people. So a team leader manages like 10 people. Some teams are like six, seven, some others are up to 15. But what happens is like the team leader have like a huge responsibility in doing the onboarding of that person. And what we have realized is that you can actually do the onboarding of one person at a time, uh, two maximum over a period of two months, right? 
so you really need to be careful with that metric, but figuring out if that's uh, a, what is your number in your case and just sticking to it. Now, what Arana is saying, it really resonates to me like a lot. In our case, we, we apply it in a slightly different way. So we have like three business units. So what we do is we take one business unit, accelerate the growth of headcount and then slow it down. And then at that moment in which we slow it down, we take the other business unit, accelerate the growth. So at the end of the day, what you look is, uh, you know, the growth rates are always like 10%. That's what we are having in headcount, uh, you know, every month for the last like two to three years. And, uh, it, but, but it was like varying depending on the business unit, right? So if you like the time to take the increase in the workforce that you have taken, just like uh, rethinking about the model, optimizing it. And then once you're done, that's going to take you like two, three months then you start again with acceleration. I remember Anne talking about it as like, a, it's like a stir, right? So you cannot move like a, from, I don't know, like 10 million to 12 million to 14 to 16 to 18. What happens is that you go into 10, then you go 10, 11, and then suddenly 20. Why? Because you reach the productivity, you reach the efficiency that you wanted, and then you can continue going to the next level. I have a graph that, that illustrates this that I did for my book. So I'll put it up in here in the notes in this. So I think it's super relevant. That's awesome. You know, you've been successful. You've been able to scale this business. You've generated a lot of value. Team has generated a lot of value for the company. Investors, you know, have done well in terms of increased value over time. You've started investing in, in a couple companies, right? As an angel investor, we've invested in a handful together. Obviously, you're super busy and 98% of your time is focused on making Crejitas, you know, the ultimate company. Some of the investments you've made, I'd love to hear from you What's the last thing that you learned from a founder that you invested in? Because we always learn every day from founders when we talk to, I mean, it's just like, it's actually a way to stay relevant sometimes because new founders are uncovering all kinds of things. What's something that you've learned from founders or from your angel investing? At the end of the day, we invest because we want to keep ourselves active and close to the ecosystem and especially to learn. It's uh, you're putting some pocket money, but in reality, what you're getting from that is much more education than anything else, right? So these days, I'm talking about Kratas more and more as a quasi-SaaS business, which is bizarre if you think about it, right? Because Kratas has nothing to do with a SaaS business. But the economics ended up by being very close to a SaaS business because we don't consume capital um, in, the, in the lending. We, we, we don't consume capital anymore. We managed to get the entire capital from investors and all the capital that we consume is on the CAC, on the customer acquisition cost. And once I get the customer on board, I get like a recurring stream of cash flows. They stick with me until the customer disappears and it's a churn, which essentially I'm describing a SaaS business. Right? Yeah. I've been fortunate of like having invested like in a couple of SaaS businesses. And the reason why I'm speaking in those terms now is just because those founders explain me how a SaaS business operates, how it works. Uh, what are the components? What you need to take care of? They thought that I, I was advising them. <laughs> and in reality, I'm stealing them uh, the, the, the intellectual property that they are that they are building. But 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 you know. But very honestly, you get like so much knowledge from all the investments that you make. You look into uh, entrepreneurs, the problems that they have, the problems that they face. You help them by, with your advice. But at the same time, you're pushing yourself to the next level. And especially in, in, in these days, we, we are creators, we are, we are fans of the intersections across different industries. And we think that they are going to happen more and more, which means that, you know, right now it's more important than ever to have like a very active ecosystem. For sure. One of your exits as an investor was an acquisition that you made yourself at Creditas. How did that work? I came across that when I was at Viva. Uh, we didn't end up buying the company, but I remember you know, we kind of bid on the company and I was an investor and there was a kind of a funny situation. Was that part of the plan when you invested? And, you know, why did you decide to buy the company? Yeah, that's, it's a good trick. I mean, you, you become a very successful, <laughs> a very successful investor if you buy yourself. Um, but uh, no, no, like jokes apart. In, in 2015, I was doing like this, uh, you know, this mapping of opportunities and what was going to be our avenues for growth, the products that we wanted to launch. Uh, we had two products, Auto and Home. And then the third that I wanted to launch was private payroll launch. The investors look at me and say, dude, you still don't have those two products. You think that you have them, but you don't have them. So can you please focus on that? Yes. I said, yeah, yeah, you're totally right. We need to focus on those two before trying to escalate this. 
Um, and, but I was like very frustrated. You got, it was like an amazing opportunity. I really wanted to do it because it, it was like a very democratic type of, uh, type of product. Uh, and then what happened was like a year, a year and a half later, uh, Ramirez, that was like the, 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 the founder of Credito, uh, he was like an executive at a bank. I had met him like uh, four years before. And then he came to me and said, hey, I've decided to become an entrepreneur and I want to do private payroll loans. And I said, no, you're kidding me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found like this other guy that he had like some experience and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, don't tell me more. Can I put some money? Can I help you? Do you want to come to our office? So we invited them to uh, join, join Creditas in the office. So they had like their own logo in, inside Creditas. Uh, I gave him like a, the first check and then I helped them in raising the money in preparing the pitch uh, and, and so on. So it was not a normal uh, financial investment for me. It was more than that. I didn't have like a hidden agenda at that point, but, uh, you know, Ramirez had always said that, you know, we, we had like a lot of synergies to explore and things that we could do together. So what happened was that he was building like a very nice business. And then two years later, he was racing like another round with, uh, you know, an amazing valuation and uh, with a very decent ticket for a Series A. In, in Brazil. And I said, uh, well, yeah, that, that was like last year. Yeah, I said, Ramirez uh, and Luis, which is uh, the co-founder, we are just going to get like a, a round of $200 million plus. And uh, we think that you will be like an amazing addition to the team. I think that it's going to be like now or never. Um, and, and then the plan was either that acquisition was going to work well, or we would have launched our own product. That was like uh, the, the two options. But the, the, the good thing that was that we were very close to each other. I knew them well. I trusted them. And that's essential in, in, in M&A, right? Absolutely. No, it's fundamental. Um, that's an awesome story. And it was a good outcome for everybody in that case, you know, because, you know, they made some money and, you know, you ended up also, uh, you know, making some money on the investment. And, and uh, so it's a success case. Um, Cerrando con broche oro, just to put you on the spot here. Since you're this big time angel investor now, and, I, and I'm uh, starting a new company, I'm not raising money right now. But when I are you down to put a check in my new in Latitude Four when I decide uh, to, to go to the market? You're being recorded right now, so uh, no pressure. It depends, Brad. Nah, come on, <laughs> yes. And please put like a set devaluation higher than what you think. Uh, that's okay. really important. Okay, good. I like that. <laughs> I love advisors and investors that tell me to increase my valuation. We've you know made some great investments together. And, you know, we, we've become friends through Endeavor and, you know, as struggling entrepreneurs from that cohort when, when it was snowing and, and we'd walk seven miles, you know, to get to the office. But thank you for one, sharing your, your expertise and your experience. You're somebody that I, I admire as an entrepreneur that I think, you know, really stuck with it. And, you know, it wasn't something that just happened overnight, uh, which a lot of times people see, uh, they only see the success and they don't see the struggle and I think that part of my objective with Latitude 4 is democratize uh, access to more information, one, and also just let people know what the real deal is, right? Because there's more local stories, people you know, in Latin America, in Brazil, and you're expanding this business regionally. You're in Mexico with stuff. You're, I'm sure you're going to be all over the region. So I think you're a great example as someone who's building a tremendous value for the region and you know, has, a, has an incredible opportunity on, on your hands. So you know, I wish I was a little capital around the time when you were raising that money because I probably would have identified the opportunity because I know how hard it was. And so anyways, but thanks a lot for sharing your experience with everyone. Thank you very much, uh, Brian. And please send me the wire instructions uh, so that I can make you the, the transfer ASAP. <laughs> okay, I will definitely do so. would love to have you uh, on the cap table and uh, it comes with some advice as well, not just money. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Sergio Furio, co-founder of Creditas. Each week, we'll be talking to great founders and investors like him. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts to find out more about the Latitude Fellowship Program. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Until next time.